This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Yet another inconclusive meeting to reach a deal between Hamas and Israel. It comes as the Israeli military is threatening a ground offensive in Rafah at the southern tip of Gaza. So does diplomacy still stand a chance in this war? And why does Rafah matter? I'm Hashim Ahbara and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests in Durham, in the UK. Robert Guy Spinfold is a lecturer on peace and security at Durham University. His special expertise is the Israeli military. In Dubai, Hafsa Halawi is an independent political consultant who focuses on the Middle East, North Africa and the Horn of Africa. And in New York City, Omar Rahman is a fellow at the Middle East Council on Global Affairs. Welcome to the program. Robert, how serious is this prospect of the military invasion of Rafah? How do you think it's just more of a push by the Israelis for political leverage during the talks which are underway for the for a deal? I think it's a deadly serious push, and Israel has definite intentions to carry this out. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has argued that there are four functional Hamas battalions in Rafah. Uh, now, originally there were 24 uh, operating Hamas battalions. Israel now argues that the surviving four are located solely in Rafah. So if Israel were to um, carry out its stated war aim of degrading and destroying Hamas militarily and rendering it politically unable to rule the Gaza Strip after the war, it therefore feels like a grand invasion of Rafa is not just inevitable, but necessary. And in fact, it's important to note that Previously, the Israeli military elite suggested that Israel should prioritize Rafa for a grand invasion because this is obviously uh, an area that sits on the border with Egypt. It's where most of the tunnels pass through and Hamas's elaborate uh, smuggling operation uh, has been based in for many, many years. But uh, Israel's political leadership vetoed that in favor of initial operation only in the north of Gaza, particularly around Gaza City. As Israel's failed to achieve its goals thus far in the war, it's been creeping mm-hmm. slowly south, and Rafah is, of course, the last place on the map that's still under uh, Hamas's control. Hafsa, the Israelis have been saying that Rafah remains the final sea uh, for Hamas, key military battalions. Do you see the push for Rafah as a turning point in the war in Gaza? 
Thank you, uh, Hashem. And uh, yes, I think we're at a major watershed moment in this conflict, not just because uh, of the massive humanitarian cost of any uh, talk of a ground invasion. Uh, we shouldn't forget that throughout the war and even in the last week, the Israelis continue to bombard Rafah. This is not an area that has been a safe zone as they initially uh, labeled it as such when they urged citizens to move from uh, Gaza City and further north down to the south, but also because, of course, it is uh, right. It sits right on the border with Egypt. It's uh, the last. Uh, it, it's seen by the Egyptians as a major uh, breach um, of, uh, you know, their their national security, and uh, ultimately, it brings into the question of where will these 1.34 million people go? The north, the rest of Gaza is effectively uninhabitable. There are no services. We're on. Uh, we we we've heard the talk of famine for months now, um, and uh, and now we're at a stage where. This is this is really the Israeli government enacting what they promised in the first week after the attacks on October 7th, which is to flatten the strip. Omar, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has been ordering the army to draw up plans to evacuate civilians from the city towards the north. And as Hafsa was basically saying, nowhere safe in Gaza. If the invasion takes place, what kind of impact do you see it having on the civilians? in the south i mean don't take it from me take it from the head of the who the head of the un the head of unra the head of all these un agencies anybody that's active on the ground anybody that's been there and seen uh what rafa looks like today and what the israelis have done to the rest of the strip has said this is an unfathomable catastrophe uh, in waiting at the moment. Uh, Hafsa said there's nowhere else for people to go. Uh, Israel has driven uh, 1.5 million people or, or less, because it was 250,000 in, in before the war started, into there. So that's the, the overwhelming majority of the Gaza Strip has been driven into Rafah, the small sliver on the border with Egypt. Uh, most of those people are in tents, in shelters, uh, starving, uh, with nowhere to go. And the kind of the, the war machine uh, that Israel has amassed is bearing down on them with what the ICJ has said is genocidal intent. So, you know, despite what uh, the other guests said about, you know, war aims uh, targeting Hamas, four battalions mm -hmm. being there, we, we can't lose sight that the ICJ a few weeks ago said that Israel has is, is, is plausibly uh, per perpetrating a genocide against the Palestinian people. And if you look at it through that lens, then what they have in store for the people of Gaza is, is as much military as it is uh, psychological to break the, the will of the people that are hanging on for dear life, that have amassed there, uh, that are starving. Um, and that Israel has has demonstrated through mm -hmm. its words and deeds, its intention is to push, push them uh, into the Sinai Peninsula. Robert, we've seen the war unfold through phases, the relentless bombardment of the northern part of, 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 of Gaza, and then the Israelis moved towards Khan Yunus, and each time they were saying basically the reason why they're doing this is to degrade the military capabilities of Hamas and deny Hamas a military presence, but also they're looking ahead to what happens next. Now, when it comes to Rafah, do you see, how would you see the scope of the invasion if it happens, and what kind of weaponry do you think the Israelis be, be using? I suspect we'll see significant numbers of boots on the ground. Uh, now, Israel has incurred um, significant military casualties in this campaign, but it is actually those casualties, the numbers are lower 
than initial army estimates suggested. Now, um, less uh, just short of 600 Israeli military um, personnel have been killed since October the 7th, but uh, still the majority of those were killed on October the 7th. So four months of fighting, there's been less uh, Israeli casualties than on that one day. Uh, I think the Israeli military will be very keen uh, to get in there. The, the problem here, as some of the other guests have alluded to, is that Israel uh, has this unfolding humanitarian crisis on its own hand, on its hands. And that crisis um, is also an operational issue here because we have 1.5 million civilians crammed into this very small territory uh, that used to be inhabited by around 250 people. Uh, so the potential for civilian casualties is even higher than it has been at other, other times in this military campaign. We have an acute problem uh, of civilian casualties. Israel also has more of an acute need to avoid civilian casualties, on the other hand, because international pressure and condemnation is increasing. The Biden mm -hmm. administration making it increasingly clear that it's losing patience with Israel and it wants a ceasefire and it wants a de-escalation of hostilities as soon as possible. So Israel is in a race against time to achieve its very, very lofty goals that didn't really correspond to a limited incursion, uh, but time is running out for it to do so. But yeah, when you look at the situation on the ground, you see a totally different reality. Uh, Hafsa, 1.4 million people sheltering in tents without access to food, water and medicine. The United Nations uh, uh, Humanitarian Affairs Chief Martin Griffiths said that the military operation could lead to a slaughter in Gaza. Yet the Israelis are saying they are adamant on the need to go there because they say that's the only way for them to crush uh, Hamas. Do you still think that the international community can have some sort of leverage to stop the Israelis from moving forward? I I mean, just to also to comment on, on the previous uh, intervention and to your question, um, the question of do they have leverage is very obvious. Yes, they do. Uh, can they have leverage is a moot question because they haven't even used it. They haven't attempted to. The UN has made its pleas. The Security Council has had resolutions tabled that the United States has vetoed. The United States is the largest military uh, arms uh, supplier in both aid and arms sales to Israel. No leverage has yet been used by the international community, the biggest powers, namely by the United States, to try and prevent this. So we're sort of talking around in circles because we get these doublespeak statements from the White House and from different podiums in Washington telling us that they're incredibly concerned and they've explained these concerns. At no point in this in this campaign uh, over the last five months has the United States moved to actually have Israel answerable to a number of incidents and actions that seem to fall far out of the ambit of the rules of engagement in conflict, let alone the intense bombardment, let alone the attacking of civilian infrastructure, humanitarian infrastructure like hospitals and other places. Um, so we're actually more at a stage of talking about uh, or asking ourselves, will the United States use its leverage? All indications to this point, mm -hmm. even with such a slaughter, as Martin Griffiths uh, very well points out in Rafah looming, does not appear that it will use its leverage. So we have to move to expect that there will be no significant pushback against the Israelis moving forward on this invasion into Rafah. Uh, Omar, uh, the South African lawyers, when they put together or their uh, their uh, their procedure towards uh, for the ICJ. They were hoping to see the third parties, particularly states that provide substantial military
financial assistance to Israel be held accountable in the case of something similar to what happens now uh, throughout Gaza, and particularly if the invasion of Rafah takes place. Is this something that could further resonate among the judges of the ICG, knowing that the South Africans, they have asked officially the ICJ to consider whether a full-scale invasion of Rafah would violate the interim ruling that the court itself issued? Yes, I think I think uh, you know what's uh, uh, what's transpired over the past few weeks since their initial ruling uh, definitely comes into play when uh, the South Africans have gone back are going back to the ICJ uh, to ask for for further rulings, further injunctions uh, because of the situation being so urgent with what's happening on the border with Rafa. So I think they have to take that into consideration. Certainly, we all hoped that uh, Israel's enablers over the past four months. Uh, would have gotten the message from the ICJ and and put pressure on Israel uh, to to halt its bombardment and to at least take seriously uh, the six uh, orders of the ICJ in terms of protecting uh, civilians. Unfortunately, that has not happened. Uh, I totally agree with Hefsa in terms of her analysis uh, on all of this. Uh, mm -hmm. But we have to take the Biden administration's hand wringing uh, when it comes to Netanyahu with a with a sense of disingenuousness because. Uh, in spite of in spite of the rhetoric, uh, the U.S. has continued to enable in every in every way. I mean, just two days ago, the U.S. Senate passed you know a 14 billion dollar aid package to Israel. Uh, now it still needs to go through the House, but that should tell you a lot. In spite mm -hmm. of uh, ruling of genocide, uh, this is where we are. Robert, when you look at Post-October the 7th, you don't, you don't get a sense that the Israelis really have a sense of clarity about how to move forward militarily or politically, because people are wondering, why would the Israelis decide now to go for an offensive in Rafah when everything is at stake, particularly the talks which are behind closed doors to try to secure a political deal that would pave the way for the Israeli captives to be released? Yeah, and, and I think what we're seeing here is a very delicate balancing act by Netanyahu, because um, he does have, and I want to challenge this view, that there is no pressure from the Biden administration. I think that's an extremely um, one-sided interpretation. There is pressure from the Biden administration. It is, at the moment, largely behind closed doors. The Biden administration has tried to shape this war. It is getting increasingly frustrated at Israel's um, apparent um, non-compliance in what it wants to achieve uh, uh, and what it's asking for from the Israelis, but it is pressuring the Israelis behind closed doors. Over time, that may become increasingly public. So Netanyahu has that pressure on the one hand to de-escalate or agree to a ceasefire, or at least to tell us how this ends, like what the post-war yeah, you know, scenario might look like. Robert, on the other hand, there's, it is, there's the coalition within Israel. Netanyahu is dependent on a far-right coalition who has said we will topple the government if there is a deal to uh, free the hostages that ends in a ceasefire that doesn't end in Hamas destroyed. So it's in Netanyahu's best interest to remain ambiguous for as long as possible. And as a result, we're seeing Israel um, basically expanding its campaign because the military is not getting a clear enough um, basically direction of the war from the political echelons above it. Uh, you know, uh, Robert, that the general consensus in this part of the world, they absolutely don't believe that there is any push by the international community or the Americans to put an end to the war in Gaza or put any leverage on the Israelis, because put, set this aside and look at the scope of the massive destruction and the loss of life in Gaza, and then you get a sense that no one is doing anything to try to help the Palestinians. Hafsa. Will this have any kind of impact on the 
talks underway to come up with a political agreement? I mean, the talks are actually quite interesting in how they're running concurrent to all of this language coming out of the Israeli war cabinet and from the prime minister focused on, on Rafah. And, uh, you know, we, we continue to be in this cycle where we get a flurry of diplomacy from U.S. officials who come to the region, this uh, sort of, you know, initially Egyptian proposal that has been uh, amended and shaped into something that it is hoped there can be some meeting in the middle between Israel and, and, and Hamas. Um, at the same time, I would just sort of, um, you know, widen this scope a little bit. If we're talking about a political agreement, we cannot look at Gaza in a vacuum. What has mm -hmm. happened in the West Bank since October 7th, thousands of Palestinians have been arrested. Uh, hundreds have been killed just since October 7th, let alone pre-October 7th and the violence ensuing dispossession and, uh, you know, an increase uh, armed civilian militia at the hands of the National Security Minister. This government in Israel has a very clear, concurrent and parallel policy it is looking to implement under the guise of this war in Gaza and under the guise of this bombardment in Gaza that seeks to root out Hamas. And the two uh, are not uh, uh, mutually exclusive of one another and they're not working separately of one another. They're very much in tandem. And I agree um, that, uh, you know, Netanyahu is completely dependent on this far-right coalition. But in the same sense, this far-right coalition is dependent on the current circumstances, on this mm -hmm. war to continue to conduct its behavior and its activities across the entirety of the occupied territories. So even if we were to look at a hostage agreement and some kind of ceasefire in, uh, in Gaza with a hostage uh, prisoner swap, in the last one that we saw, more Palestinians were arrested than were released. So the entirety mm -hmm. of the territories needs to be taken into account, which is not being done on a part of any of the actors around the table, be it in Cairo, in Paris, or at any point that they've met in recent weeks. Omar, would it be possible for the Qataris, the Egyptians and the Americans to narrow some of the differences between Hamas and Israel? This is where they stand. Israel says that they will continue, even with a deal, they will continue their fight until they crush Hamas. Hamas, on the other hand, is saying they're not going to go ahead with any deal unless there is strong guarantee of a permanent ceasefire and the Israelis pulling out entirely from Gaza. Would it be possible for the mediators to narrow some of those differences? Uh, unfortunately, I don't see them coming together. Maybe narrow a bit, but uh, ultimately, I think these two sides are too far apart. Uh, Israel, I think, is intent um, on uh, you know pursuing this campaign uh, to the end, and Netanyahu has made that clear. Total victory. Uh, what that means is a bit more obscure. Some people are reading into it uh, the elimination of Hamas's military capabilities. Others are reading it to something uh, you know, far more sweeping against the Palestinian people in Gaza. I lean towards the latter. Uh, but I don't think that Netanyahu has any intention of stopping. I don't think there is even a prioritization of the hostages that remain uh, there. If so, Israel would not be carpet bombing uh, the Gaza Strip. You know, it's already killed 31 of its own people, including three that were shot dead, waving white flags, trying to escape. Uh, and so I don't think uh, there's, you know, any, any other interest here besides pushing all the way to the end and, uh, you know, bringing the, the full weight of that military machine uh, down on the Palestinian people that are there in the Gaza Strip. Robert, you said if there, were, if there was going to be any invasion of Rafah is going to be boots on the ground. Now, if you look at the, at the geography and the landscape, we're talking about area that borders Egypt. Do you see the Israelis moving forward? If they start bounding those areas, it's going to be 
closer to the military posts of the Egyptians with the potential of a massive spillover? Yeah, this has, as you say, the potential for um, regional consequences. It, it's something that is, this war is looking less and less limited to the Gaza Strip. You know, we've had a mention of what's happening in the West Bank. There's the unfolding situation on the Lebanon border. And this conflict now risks spilling over to Egypt, which is the Sisi regime's worst nightmare. And they have warned Israel uh, that any, uh, any such spillover would basically abrogate the peace treaty between both countries. And what Sisi there is trying to do is to try and induce a strong response from President Biden. The Egyptians will be talking to the Americans and saying, look, we need you to stop the Israelis going into Rafah, or at least minimizing their presence, because we cannot have this spillover. We cannot have anything that looks like we are complicit in the ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip or the uh, forced migration of Gazans from southern Gaza into uh, the Sinai Peninsula, because at this stage, mm -hmm. these people have nowhere else to go. Israel won't let them return north. Uh, to Gaza City, to, to the, which has been essentially reduced to rubble, and it won't, uh, and the Egyptians won't let them come over the border. So these 1.5 million displaced people are now. Uh, more desperate than ever, more destitute than ever. But at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, there really is no clear um, exit strategy uh, for these people. And that is where the Biden administration and the Egyptians together will be pressuring Israel okay. to try and come to some sort of um, conclusion there. Uh, Hafsa, should we take the Egyptians seriously when they warn that? If the offensive takes place, that could jeopardize the decades-old peace treaty between Israel and Egypt? I would love to confidently say uh, that, yes, you could. My personal feeling is that now is the time to suspend the Camp David Treaty. I think that it is the only thing that may uh, consequentially put some distance between the U.S. administration and the Israelis and and you and have the U.S. use significant leverage to ensure that the Rafah invasion doesn't go ahead. Sadly, I uh, this regime is incredibly um, uh, generally uh, avert, averse to conflict. It does not want to uh, risk. And, and I think, in part, the messaging over the last five months from the United States, even as, as, as late as two days ago, when President Biden insinuated that President Sisi, uh, despite the mix-up of countries, that President Sisi had kept the border closed uh, for humanitarian aid, we know at the time that that was an issue with the Israelis not wishing to have aid in and wanted to see mm. people uh, flow out. So um, they don't have confidence at this point, I would argue that if they were to threaten to suspend the treaty, that the United States would actually take that seriously. Having said that, the Egyptians are also not uh, a very, very um, sort of allergic to major knee-jerk policy decisions, especially mm -hmm. under this leadership. And I don't see the Sisi regime following through as much as I do believe it is the right policy move okay. to make at this point. Omar, the, if you look at the, uh, at the latest diplomatic push, it seems to be pretty much centered on this deal. But you look at the broader picture, you get a sense that we've moved beyond the phase of a deal and we're looking for new security arrangements. Who is, who's, going, who's going to take over Gaza? Is it going to be a new Palestinian uh, leadership, Palestinian authority? What kind of role will, will it have? Is this, is this a legitimate thing to happen now? Or, or do you think this is something that the Palestinians themselves will ultimately have to decide in the future? Well, certainly the Palestinians will have to decide uh, and agree because nothing will have any kind of legitimacy among the people uh, without their consent. Uh, but I think, you know, what's what's taken place uh, so far in terms of discussions has largely come out of the United States to find 
uh, a way forward. Uh, they're kind of grasping at straws here, bring the Palestinian Authority back, something to that effect, have the Gulf states uh, use their vast oil wealth to rebuild. Uh, but when it comes to the perspective of those states, the Arab states, the Gulf states, um, they don't want to be roped into uh, a project of, of rebuilding without some kind of pathway to a permanent peace. Because then in the end, then they're roped into kind of the same trap that the Palestinian Authority has in the West uh -huh. Bank, in which they are doing Israel's bidding. They're policing and governing on behalf of Israel, uh, while Israel continues to colonize the West Bank, uh, you know, Judaize Jerusalem, and all these kind of things, without taking any serious steps for peace. Okay. So I think the Gulf states are very wary of being complicit in what Israel has done and fitting the bill uh, for Israel's mess. Robert, guys, Binfold, Hafsa Halawi, Omar Rahman, I really appreciate your insight. Looking forward to talking to you in the near future. Thank you. This episode was produced by Mohammed Al Aishi, Paul Ging, Veronica Pedrosa, and Jima Harris. Studio sound was by Yara Atallah. The program was edited by Mohammed Subhi, Zainab Bada, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tuning on Thursday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, a look at the Indonesian elections, celebrated as a festival of democracy. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.